This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When a state sets up a scholarship program for young people to attend school and gives a decisive role to parents in choosing those educations, can it rule out religious schools? Today, the Supreme Court said no, it can't. Cato's Ilya Shapiro and Neil McCluskey discuss Blaine Amendment's so-called no-aid provisions in school choice in the case of Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Many states have uh, explicitly, I guess you'd call them anti-Catholic uh, Blaine Amendments uh, in their state constitutions, and uh, these have served to keep public funds from flowing to uh religious schools. So, uh, Ilya, what was the issue here uh, in the Espinoza case? Yeah, these Blaine Amendments typically are called no-aid provisions. And for that matter, there are some states that have similar provisions that don't date to the Blaine era. But in in any event, it prevents, or it's supposed to prevent either the direct or indirect funding of uh, religious exercise, schools, institutions, uh, organizations. In any event, uh, uh, Montana set up a a school choice tax credit program. That is, people could donate to this scholarship program, take a tax credit for that, and then parents, the families that qualify for these scholarships can then use them uh, for various schools. The Montana Revenue Department, like their their treasury, uh, declined or or disqualified religious schools uh, from being eligible to receive these parents' uh, scholarship uh, monies. And then on appeal, when when uh, Mrs. Espinoza, who works three jobs and wants to send her kids to a good school, uh, when she challenged this determination that she couldn't use that for a religious school, uh, uh, on appeal, the Montana Supreme Court said, "Okay, look, um, you know this action might not be proper. We're just going to close the entire school choice program. We're taking our ball and and, and going home. You know, completely shutting down what the Montana." legislature wanted. And so the question is, and John Roberts uh, presents this in his majority opinion uh, today, very short majority opinion, five to four, he says, the question for the court is whether the free exercise clause of the First Amendment precluded the Montana Supreme Court from applying Montana's no aid provision to bar religious schools from the scholarship program. For purposes of answering the question, we accept the Montana Supreme Court's interpretation of state law. Uh, and we assess whether excluding religious schools and affected families uh, was consistent with the U.S. Constitution, ultimately saying it was not. Um, Neil, to you, what is the practical effect here for families that would like to take advantage of school choice programs and send their kids to religious schools using those funds? Well, this is the dropping of one more barrier to school choice. This doesn't say that school choice is necessary. In fact, the the decision says that that's not something you can conclude from this. But states uh, and school choice opponents in particular have often said, look, this state constitution doesn't allow people to take uh, school choice money to religious schools. And since most private schools are religious, you just can't really have school choice. The reality is there are a lot of states that had these compelled support or Blaine amendments that did have school choice um, because where people wanted it, they often found ways to get it. So it was not like it was a barrier that was never overcome. More often, I think it was sidestepped. 
But now we have a ruling that says, look, you can't strike down a program just because it allows religious choice. So it moves the ball forward a little bit in overall push for school choice, and it does remove an obstacle in, in individual states that that stood in the way of school choice. This is hardly, you know, when you mentioned the slam dunk, this is not like the this isn't the winning goal or a basketball analogy. It's not the winning slam or three-pointer or anything like that. But it does advance school choice by saying, look, here's one less excuse you can use for why school choice is supposedly not viable. Um, Ilya, to what extent does Trinity Lutheran inform this decision? I think it's on all fours, uh, as lawyers would say, meaning it, it follows naturally from it. Trinity Lutheran was... Uh, a, a, a neutral program to provide funding for kids' playgrounds. Shredded uh, like tires, I Shredded believe. tires, that's right. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, uh, we'd had no padding, and if you fell off the monkey bars and broke your arm, well, you know, you learned from that experience. But, you know, now, and I appreciate it with two little kids myself, I kind of appreciate that these uh, uh, playgrounds have the, uh, whether they're tires or anything else. But anyway, uh, ultimately, uh, the Missouri uh, d- Department uh, applying this recycling program disqualified a church pl- program, uh, again, because of one of these no-aid uh, provisions, and the Supreme Court ruled uh, also five to four that this was, uh, that this was improper. Uh, and so similarly here, uh, the majority opinion does say you don't have to have a school choice program, whether through tax credits, scholarships, or otherwise, but if you do, uh, you have to allow people to to choose to use these scholarship funds at uh, religious in addition to, to secular schools. Um, Neil, to what extent might this uh, spur states to go the other way? That is to say, there may be some uh, significant animosity toward uh, nominally state funds or certain programs that uh, provide funding for uh, students. Uh, the animosity toward religious organizations. Could it lead states to go the other way and say, well, we're just not going to have a school choice program? That is a concern. One of the things that we've seen uh, percolating up in the last few years in opposition to school choice is the idea that people uh, will take their uh, scholarships to religious schools. And in particular, if they're religious schools that have policies that are seen as anti-LGBTQ, that that shouldn't be allowed, that it is immoral to have public funds going to such places. And this does put you in a more of a bind at the state of saying, well, if we are going to have school choice, well, we have to allow people to make those sort of choices. Now, the principle in a free society is we let people choose things even if we don't like those choices, as long as they aren't imposing harms on other people. Um, But as a political matter, this is, I think, the big uh, strategy now, or the biggest strategy to try and stop school choice, to say it allows bigots to be bigoted and therefore should not be permitted. How many states, uh, this is to either of you, uh, how many states are would be affected by this? Uh, there are many states that have Blaine amendments uh, and other provisions of their state constitutions that uh, prohibit this uh, movement of funds, even if they're funds that, uh, as the Supreme Court has previously ruled, are not public funds. Um, how many states were affected? Last I thought, so it was 37 states. Uh, uh, Institute for Justice, I think, calculated that. I think it's still true. I haven't seen a change. 
And these are so among those 37, then how many have school choice programs that uh, would be directly affected by this ruling? That is a good question. Um, the only one I think would be directly affected is Montana, because the other ones, if they have a school choice program, they're actually functioning except for Nevada's, and it's not functioning because of a funding issue, not because of a compelled support or plain amendment issue. Um, and there are 27 or maybe there are 29. I, sometimes I lose count because school choice has been so successful. But there, I think there are actually 29 states with a school choice program, which means there must be overlap. Uh, between having these provisions and having school choice. Again, in part because often they are sidestepped. Some of these uh, programs have been challenged actually in other state bases. Are you providing a, an equitable system of public schools if you have school choice, those sorts of things. So these are, the Blaine Amendments are bad things, but they, and, and they have been obstacles, but they I don't think are typically the primary obstacle. Um, and there have been ways around them. Yeah, this is uh, really the last legal obstacle, uh, I think, as, as Neil mentioned. Uh, and it's been quite a journey, uh, both politically as and a matter of policy, as, as Neil has described, but, but also legally speaking. 20 years ago, uh, it wasn't clear whether vouchers or tax credits or any of this was uh, uh, legal or would survive a constitutional challenge. And now it's clear, um, you know, the court has, has brushed away the legal obstacles. This is now purely a a political fight to uh, uh, to enact uh, educational equality, school choice, all of these sorts of things. But uh, this is one area where uh, the courts are, are are really not a problem. Can I can I just ask one question about that? Because uh, from the the ruling, um, they do make a distinction between status and use, and it read to me like you can't say religious schools can't participate just because they're religious. But it seemed to leave an opening that you could say someone couldn't choose a religious school because you want to learn religion. And Gorsuch, in his uh, concurrence, he said this is, should be a non-distinction, whether you're, it's your status or it's how you're using it. The First Amendment doesn't care. It can't discriminate. Well, well that's right to the extent that you have vocational versus, uh, quote unquote, normal education. So there is the case of Locke versus Davey, where uh, if you're getting a, a professional degree, we're no longer talking about K to 12. If you're getting some sort of you know, professional degree, uh, yeah, the state doesn't have to fund you to become a priest. That's kind of a separate issue than whether you know, kids are learning reading, writing, and arithmetic. I suppose if you have some sort of proselytizing kids school, that might be somewhat different. So, uh, Ilya, we should uh, at least discuss what the dissenters said. What what was their uh, argument? Uh, I think each one of them, uh, each one of the, the liberal justices who were in dissent, this was a five to four uh, decision, uh, wrote separately. I've sort of uh, skimmed, uh, skimmed them. The, the overall uh, issue is that um, this uh, uh, unlawfully entangles the government with the advancement of religion, uh, that there should be enough play in the joints, uh, as it were, between the free exercise and the Establishment Clause to uh, allow a state Supreme Court to say, no, this is a, a undue interference uh, or involvement, entanglement between religion uh, and, uh, and the government. Uh, uh, something along those lines. It's it's you know nothing that was really 
uh, unexpected. It was a hard fought case. And this was the, the, the dissenters basically adopted uh, the argument uh, of Montana that, that we don't just because we don't want our uh, tax credit funded uh, uh, scholarships to go to uh, uh, religious uh, instruction uh, doesn't mean that this is somehow violating uh, uh, free exercise. States, of course, are it's well within their powers to get rid of these laws and uh, make changes that would prevent uh, this kind of funding of education that has a religious component. Sure. Uh, so no state is required to have any sort of school choice program. Now, I, I think that maybe there's a case to be made that if you are going to provide public schools that you should uh have to provide something for religious people, but nobody is, uh, I've made that argument, but it's not something we see percolating a lot. And this case certainly doesn't say, or this decision doesn't say that government is required to provide school choice options. So yes, a state could just say, okay, we're not going to do any school choice. I hope they don't do that. I think they would be hard pressed to do that if a school choice program is in place uh, like all programs, but in this case, it's a good program. And, and frankly, it's hard to get rid of. Frankly, a, a an action like that r- reminds me of the uh, the massive resistance to desegregation, where um, you know some states, some uh, school boards, uh, you know, closed whether it's schools or or public facilities, pools and whatnot, uh, and essentially the people transferred their money to separate uh, uh, all white academies, uh, uh, if you will, and so uh, you know. Shutting down the entire program just uh, you know to spite those uh, religious parents, I think, is, would be unfortunate, and then certainly there'd be litigation over that as well. Yeah, the the loudest pushback against school choice over the last year or so has been in Florida, uh, largely because there are a lot of religious schools that are seem to be very conservative Christian schools, um, and the governor just a few days ago signed a huge expansion of their voucher program. So there doesn't seem to be any indication that states are about to uh, cut back on school choice. It may make it a little harder to create new programs. I don't. I can't really read the tea leaves to say how much this is going to impact it. My guess is most people won't pay a whole lot of attention to this once they get into state and local level politics. But I don't see any indication that there's a massive effort that's likely to have any effect at rolling back school choice that already exists. Ilya Shapiro directs constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Neil McCluskey directs Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 